Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. Canucks Central is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. We come to you from the Kintec studio after the Canucks have suffered their first loss of the season. Sad, have you come down from the... Uh, the reaction to the first post-game show of the year? It is still coming in. Uh, the reaction is still there. Uh, honestly, I, I, it was a lot of fun last night. It, yeah. it was a fun game, some controversy. People showed a lot of emotion. A lot of emotion. Yeah. Um, you know, and getting the first loss out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it is a bit, it's a bit of a relief when the first loss comes and goes and you're like, all right. Only 81 more to go. Right? They won't lose all 81. <laughs> like, I promise you that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I guarantee. You sure about like, that? Come on. Okay, that's fair. Come on. Um, come on. You know how hard it is not to win. Do I have to do the thirty <laughs> win rant again? It's game two of the season. So, so there was a lot to to take away from the game. Um, you know, uh, we're gonna get into Bo Horvat and some of the other things that uh, have really become talking points in the wake of the first result of the season. But just to comment on, yes, the controversy of it all and how the Oilers ended up scoring their first goal it's a lot easier when you know you're already down a man and Evander Kane can essentially take one more player out of the play for you um and and have there be no call you know the thing the thing I always like with penalties sat if a penalty or an infraction goes unnoticed okay it happens when it leads directly to a goal or helps lead directly to a goal. That's when it really irks me, no matter what the situation is. And that's what happened in that play at the same time. I don't know how anybody can say that's what cost the Canucks the game. Yeah, it was a bit of a turning point, but you're still up 3 1. I mean, I will not hear any argument that that's the reason the Canucks lost the game. No, and I think a lot of emotion from fans post game was, hey, that's the reason they lost. And I think upon you know a sober reflection today, it's like, okay, yeah, that sucked and it was bad. And I wish officials were held accountable for game changing plays or momentum shifting plays and all that sort of stuff. But you can't pin the loss on that. And no. all the players and the coach all echo the same sentiment. We had enough opportunities on the power play. We made mistakes that cost us. We did a lot of good things, but that's a game we shouldn't have lost. And yeah. I don't think any, it should be acceptable to lose a game like this, like like they did last night. Not taking any excuses. You know, is it going to be a problem all season long? I mean, I would hope not. But I liked some of the messages that we heard coming out of the game in that, yeah, Clearly, nobody in that room felt it was acceptable to give up that 3 nothing lead, no matter the circumstance, no matter Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl turning it up a notch. You have to find a way to close out that game, period, end of story. Uh, there is no debate about that. So, okay. I saw your tweet from earlier today, at Satyar Shaw, and I heard some of the post-game last night with you and Bick. It's very clear there is more of a microscope on Bo Horvat right now, Sat. Yeah, and the most surprising thing, it's not surprising for fans to be upset. I don't even think it's surprising for Bo to take some heat. I was surprised at the degree of heat he took after the first game. Yeah. And 
not that he was good, but he didn't do anything outwardly bad. Like there was no like outwardly bad turnover. There was no egregious mistake. The worst play he made was the play where Pedersen tried to pass him the puck on the power play. The tying goal, yeah. Bit of a soft play not to be able to get that puck deep. It was a bad pass by Pedersen too. I mean, if he doesn't make that pass, then Bo's not in that position. If you look at the analytics of that game, he actually had very good analytics. Bo yeah. Horvat did. So that's not to say he was great or whatever, but I th- the reaction to the game he had, I thought was interesting. And what's, what interests me about it and what, what I think it, it showed was there are certain narratives emerging around Bo, people that don't want Bo or on the team anymore, people that are, are want to change or don't think the Canucks should be paying Bo. They say, well... You're going to be paying him $7 million. He's not really a big hitter. Doesn't score as much as those other guys do. Yep. Not really a penalty kill feature. So why are you paying $7 million to your third-line center who is not producing to the same level those other guys are? And is he the right leader for this team? Yada, yada, yada. I mean, those are fair questions. They're kind of narrative-based. But I don't think any of that was a problem last night. But when you see a performance like his where he wasn't Let's say he didn't have the same energy that, say, JT showed at times or, or Patterson showed at times. So maybe that's something that had people thinking, okay, he's he's not bringing it anymore. He's kind of floating and all that sort of stuff. I think it was more of narratives being confirmed by how it looked as opposed to how he actually played. And I think it shows the frustration with Bo and his contract situation is already palpable. It's uh, It's kind of crazy how that narrative sort of shifts so quickly. I... Like, Bo has always been the darling of the city, right? Uh, he can do no wrong. He stands in front of the cameras through a lot of difficult situations over the last few years and has been a really nice part of the Vancouver community as a whole. I don't think any of those things can be disputed. But the sense I get is people are starting to understand it's going to cost probably seven and a half million per year to keep this guy. And they are starting to judge him on that seven and a half million per year sort of estimation. Well, last night JT wasn't great and he had some good moments. I thought well, the difference between JT and Bo last night was JT had a goal. Like, he did. I, no, I don't I, think JT had that great of a game either. No, but I thought JT played a lot better for the first 25 minutes of that game. And then wasn't quite the same player. And one thing I wanted to reference on the on the play you mentioned on the first goal that Edmonton scored on the the Drysaddle power play goal where Quinn gets yeah smacked in the schnoz. There's a play right off the faceoff along the wall where uh, JT Miller has the puck. He can backhand it out of the zone. He doesn't, and it looks like he starts favoring his right side. Hunches over a little bit. Doesn't quite drop a stick, but takes one hand off the stick. Is late to kind of join the play, and that's. After Hughes gets sticked and, you know, they score, he's late to join in. He didn't look right after that play, so I wonder if he actually pulled something or hurt himself. And I didn't notice it uh, until this today when I was rewatching the game. I'm like, okay, well, that looked like a weird play. So I, so I think that JT, to start the game, was really good, and then that kind of started waning. He had a commitment to defense, I thought, early on. He went to the right spots. He was, he was back-checking properly. As the game went on, it started to wane. So I wonder if yeah. there's some sort of physical thing that was going on with him to some degree. But uh, I'd say the big thing in that game was Bo just didn't score, to your point. Yeah. And when you're talking about Bo getting the same amount of money that a guy like JT's making potentially, or seven to eight million, or Pedersen's making, you know, seven and a half million, but those guys are scoring. JT's yeah. coming off 99 points. It's like, okay, well. Why are we paying this guy the same amount of money if he's not going to be scoring at the same rate? I think that's part of it, too. 
Uh, Bo had the the great chance uh, in the third where Pod Colson finds him streaking in through the zone, cross-ice pass. Uh, Bo misses the net on the one-timer. I thought it was really interesting um, that Edmonton started to take away the low-high bumper pass that the Canucks are really, really into. Bo even referenced that post game we're going to talk a little bit deeper about the power play later on but it's clear there is another level people want to see from Bo Horvat is that fair I'm not so sure because as I've said Sat like this is this is the guy that he is as we've talked about his five on five numbers are generally the same they don't they really don't change all that much. So when it comes to Bo, and, and this is why we're having this conversation about the contract, it's you're going to have to pay seven plus million for this player. A guy probably can score 30 goals, is solid, but not great, not elite off, uh, defensively, you know, not the two way savant. That seems to be his reputation in some parts of the league. This is who Bo Horvat is, and that's that's what people are judging him on now. And I don't know if um, I don't know if there's too many people that are going to say that guy's worth seven and a half million bucks. Well, you know, I think the question comes down to: Is he worth seven and a half million dollars to this team? Yes. Two things that you have to keep in mind, and this is why the Canucks. I still think, as much as we're talking about, hey, can you pay him? Can the Canucks pay him? They might trade him. They don't have a third line. They don't have a center coming up through the system. You know, Niels Ullman, maybe? Mm-hmm. Ullman? All right. You want to talk about him a little bit? But is he going to be a third line produce point-producing center? Not quite sure about that. Like, does he's, it, he's doesn't the one look guy. like he's got much of... Uh... <laughs> well, he doesn't project to be. Yeah. I mean, he projects to be a defensive, you know, bottom six centerman. But not quite the offensive guy, right? There isn't a lot there in the system. So... At the end of the day, they could get back. They can feel like they're backed into signing Bo and keeping him because you don't have a lot else. But I think the question for Bo is simply this: Is he worth paying that much money for this team? Yeah. And f- when you look at this Canucks roster and you look at the centers and the types of players that they have, do they have enough variance down the middle? JT not a great penalty killer. Plays a lot of the penalty kill, but he's not a great penalty killer. Yeah. Um, Pedersen shows some potential, but he's not going to be a go-to three, four minutes a night you know, penalty killer, right? He's not going to be your first penalty killer. So he can help out, but is that really his big strength? And then Bo is not a penalty killer. You have a fourth liner, sure, but do you need somebody else that can have different, uh, have some different qualities down the middle? Is that what you're looking for? Now, we can sit here and talk, well, you want the perfect third-line center, sure, but if you can't find one, you hold on to the centers you have. So I wouldn't assume that Bo is necessarily getting traded here. But I think the Canucks are just trying to weigh the one thing, and I've been saying this for a long time. They can afford to pay both $7 million, but is he the player you want to bet that money on? Because I don't see them shifting the money from the forwards to the back end. Like Just because they trade Bo doesn't mean they're going to take that money and go sign a defenseman. The Canucks' defense, Dan, is already overpriced as it is. Yeah. And the solution isn't to throw more big money at an already bloated back end. You know, It's to try to reallocate that money. The budget for the forwards are going to be there. But if you're locking into Bo for five, six years, seven years, eight years, you you spent your other big ticket item for your forward group. And you see the guy that's worth that money. To, to me, it's a, that's a simple calculation here. Yeah. It, 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 you make a good point. You know, would it uh, would it be 
I don't know about smarter, but is it a better way to build out your team if you can find a third-line center that has some offense, not as much as Bo, but can really eat some of those penalty kill minutes as well? Um, that could be a part of the thought process as well in this. I, I just don't I don't think Bo, like, as critical as we have been about Bo at times, last night was not the game that really he deserved – that criticism no I think I don't think he deserved the criticism for that game the degree of it but it's emblematic of where things are with yeah. the Canuck with Canucks fans and Bo Horvat like yeah. even the text and message inbox right now it's full of negativity around Bo and how he played yeah. others some are defending him but there's tons of negativity around Bo and until the contract situation gets figured out I think this is kind of what it's what, what it's going to be like. It was interesting because around JT, there wasn't the same negativity around JT. It was more about like, trade him, trade him because you got to get something for him. Don't yeah. sign him. You can't sign him to a contract. But there wasn't necessarily negativity towards his lack of production. Sure, some turnovers and some of the body language stuff. But with Bo, it's gotten to that point already. Because when you go from being a $5.5 million player who's viewed as a bargain for that money and can score 30 goals... And all of a sudden, you're talking about committing big-time money to that player. Well, fans are going to be looking at that guy in a different light. It's uh, Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. Our live listeners always appreciate you. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Amir from Victoria. People forgive JT so easily. JT did the classic JT drop pass, but this time in his zone, yeah. right to that fourth-line center on the Oilers, McDavid. Lucky Demko bailed him out, yet you can imagine if that was Bo. The Canucks fans have a double standard. That's it's from Amir. I, I, he's not wrong in terms of the double standard, but the double standard happens when one player significantly out- outproduces the other player. Yeah. And it's something that even, you know, Boudreaux's mentioned. It's like, hey, I'll let you get away with stuff if you score. Mm-hmm. And not to say that, you know, Bo was doing a lot of bad stuff, because he wasn't. Like, he had a clean game last night. Didn't create much, but he had a clean game overall, you know? But when you're a guy that's a point-per-game player, like JT's been, had 99 points last year, yeah, you can get away with more stuff, because you produce more, you know? And that's ultimately, the, like, if you're going to do some stuff like that, you got to have a bigger, uh, better bottom line. I uh, I continue to want to dispel the narrative that Bo doesn't play with quality wingers. I don't think that narrative has been out there today or no, yesterday, was it, it? It hasn't been there a ton today or, or the last couple of days, but maybe that is because people really appreciate Vasily Podkolzin but and Colson Connor was, Garland. was spectacular. Well, it was spectacular. It was great last night. I thought he was one of their best forwards last night. He was the best player on that line, I thought. Yeah, he made uh, a few tremendous defensive plays uh, had a few passes that led to shots, did really well in the offensive zone, was good on his entries and exits. Uh, Pod Colson had a really well-rounded game. You talked about it. He's the best two-way player on that line. And, and that showed in a big way last night. He showed in one game. He yeah. showed it in one game, for he, sure. He's he's just such a smart hockey player, right? And, I mean, on that play where he comes and blocks a shot, that's the obvious one that a lot of people gave, gave, gave him credit for and everything like that. But... Man, it's just also just being in the right spot. One thing the Canucks did, and we'll talk more about this, you know, in the next segment about how the Canucks broke out and all that sort of stuff. But I thought he was really involved in helping the Canucks getting out of their own zone and also getting set up in the offensive zone. His forechecking was solid. He took the right lanes. You know, it's just he's one of those guys. He's so mature with how he plays. Yeah, just watching him do regular things is is just impressive. I was really impressed with him last night. Uh, Pod Colson, really strong uh, in the way that he played last night and a big positive for the Canucks in that he was so good. Um, Okay, so 
the, the Bo Horvat conversation is not going away. It's going to be something that sticks, especially until a resolution with his contract comes down the line. But it seems one thing that is almost universal coming out of this game, Sat, people felt the Canucks played pretty well at 5-on-5. Five five. You heard it from the players last night. Uh, I heard it throughout the day on Sportsnet 650. Uh, special teams cost them the game. They didn't score enough on the power play. We're going to diagnose some of their issues on the power play a little bit later on this hour. Uh, the penalty kill gave up a couple of goals. They gave up a shorthanded one as well. It was special teams, not 5-on-5, five five, that hurt the Canucks last night what did we like about what they did five on five it was really good their team game and their breakouts and entries were really solid but my biggest takeaway was a lot of it was based on their forwards the Canucks generated next to no offense from their back end last night yeah and that's not a bad thing considering the Canucks still had the run of play for the most part at even strength except for the end of the game where Edmonton really got going a bit but for the most part Vancouver had a really did a really good job of it and they didn't have a ton of breakdowns which I like there wasn't a ton of missed assignments some chaos gets created by guys like McDavid but that's that's what's going to happen yeah. when McDavid's out can't there. avoid it but generally I, I like that aspect of it but the forwards were a lot deeper especially the center and one of the things that really helped out was having Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, JT Miller get the puck kind of in front of the net. And they did a really good job of either finding the other forwards on the wing or just skating it up ice themselves and getting the zone entry. The Canucks had a, did a really good job of gaining zone entries and getting through the neutral zone last night. But a lot of it, most of it, was their forwards. Forwards a bit lower, yeah. helping out to get out of the zone. And a couple times you even noticed the wing wingers on, on the one wall would be staggered. One mm-hmm. guy would be closer to the blue line, but one guy would be right behind him up by the red line. And part of that was... If you can't get a clean one, just tip it, and we'll try to get back from the other side. And for a team that's trying to be better with their breakouts, the one thing I also liked was they weren't trying to force it. They were still, hey, the goal is still to get out of our zone as quickly as possible. you know. And if we have to just chip it out, let's just chip it out. We can chase it. We can do the 50-50 plays. It seemed like a nice hybrid between let's get cleaner out of our own zone. Let's have the forwards be a bit deeper. Let's get make sure the centers really help us rush the puck out. But also, let's not fool around with it. Yeah. You know, let's get the puck out as much as possible. And they had enough bodies getting out of their own zone that if there was a 50-50, there would be enough of a presence to try to win that puck battle. What was sort of uh, promising for me they did this on a night where Quinn Hughes wasn't at his best. No, you can tell he was labored because yeah. he was dealing with the flu. He wasn't 100%. I mean, he battled, played hard, and missed some time after taking a high stick to the face, but he definitely wasn't at his best. You, you definitely, like, I, I still expect Hughes to be the guy that drives offense from the back end, but it's clear the Canucks are, aren't worried about creating more offense out of their defensemen. I mean, there was a stark contrast just on the other side of the puck, right? Like, how much did Darnell Nurse jump into the play? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, how much did Evan Bouchard uh, get up ice yeah. at different points? And part of it was, I know you made the point of, hey, will the Canucks miss Myers? And yeah. Like, yeah, well, we'll see. And I don't think that... that I heard those shouts on the postgame <laughs> show. All but, right. I saw those <laughs> tweets coming out of Canucks Twitter. But, but, Myers, um, what they missed was his offensive... 
um, instincts. And, well, production too. Like the Canucks, usually what Myers does well is help create offensive chances. And if you look at his micro stats, he does a good job of creating scoring chances and being involved in scoring chances for. There's also scoring chances against. Yes. And Dermott's actually also good at getting the puck up and and initiating some of those chances offensively. Not having those two guys, I think, also made it a bit harder for Vancouver to get involved, so I think it played a part into it. But I think a lot of their pressure and a lot of their transition game is going to be based on their forwards. And they talked about this too throughout the course of the offseason, that you want to have better players. Your system has to be a certain way that allows you to have a better breakout. And like we talked to JT before the season, the forwards have to do a better job of being available yeah. for those for those outlets. And they they did a good job last night of being available. And it wasn't being stretched out too much. Sometimes you get too close, but I think they did a really good job with with having the right amount of spacing on their breakouts last night. It was uh like think about well Pedersen's for, like Pedersen's opening goal. Um he comes deep to help the defense break the puck out and he just ends up flipping it down the ice. Yeah. Um, but then also follows up with the play and anticipates uh, the pass from Holloway to Dreisaitl through the middle of the ice and is able to create that turnover. But there was a few moments in the first period where it's just like, yeah, you, you can notice it. It's very noticeable that especially the centerman dropping to help the yeah. defenseman uh, break the puck out of the uh, out of their own end. It's a lot more work on the centerman. Yeah, but you know if you are you know pretty even in how you hand out the ice time, and that's the benefit of having three centers you can lean on. I mean, even strength essentially, Bo Pedersen and JT had the same amount of ice time last night, just twelve and something and change, right? Yeah, and that allowed them to consistently have that pressure and go back and be deeper and, and help your game out. And that's what the Canucks have to do. Their defense didn't just all of a sudden change to become this puck you know rushing. Uh, chance-creating defense overnight. It's going to have to be a team effort to do it. And honestly, when you look around the league, a lot of teams that, you know, this is why Boudreaux, I mean, sorry, this is why Rutherford keeps talking about structure. A lot of the teams that don't have great defenses but still have, you know, a good forecheck and, and play an overall pretty decent team game, they do it because their forwards are super involved in the game. And we saw that from the Canucks last night. I, I, I guess one of my worries would be, like, are you giving up anything on the offensive end when you're doing that? But I mean, last degree- night, like, the Canucks... Like they got whatever they wanted. Well, you like a lot of the night they got what they wanted in the offensive for end. Sh- for sure. Now, I think I think the difference here is because it's a good point, and I think we saw some of that last year or two to begin because the Canucks did a decent job getting out of their own zone, but they would generate no offense. None. Remember, it was just like it was just like no event hockey essentially <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. It was just such a weird thing, but. They did a pretty good job for the first little bit, just trying to get out and, and having support. But their biggest issue once it got to the offensive zone was they're trying to create offense from their points. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, your exit's closer, but where you're trying to generate offense is farther from the net. You know what I mean? And it just they weren't able to create a lot. But because the focus is to get so much deeper now, you're right. Maybe it does it does take away some opportunities, but because you're forechecking and if you're getting out with pressure, if you're getting out with the forecheck was really good last night. Well, there it is. Because if you yeah. get out of your own zone with puck possession, well, then you can initiate the zone entries. And the Canucks last night, their zone entries were excellent. Yeah, their their entries. Uh, they did you know dump a few pucks in, but I thought. Which is fine. If you recover the dump-ins, it's fine. And, and I thought they did that at a pretty good rate last night. Um, so maybe like part of you know how the game flipped a little bit in the third period was, hey, we expended a lot of energy in those first 30 minutes doing these things, and we didn't have the, that same jump uh, later on in the game. It is the first game of the season. But guys like Garland, uh, there was a, a really strong play in the first by Besser, I think he beat 
two Oilers to to mm-hmm. the puck and won a battle down low. I mean, just like little things like that that add up to big things, right? And I thought that really helped the Canucks to create more chances. They had the crossing pass going all night long. I mean, we you know uh, the the Pedersen pass to to Hoglander, Podkolzin across to um, across to Horvat, Kuzmenko to Miller. I mean, they they were able yeah. to generate that cross-seam pass that we talk about so much, that being a big one that ends up leading to goals. And they probably should have capitalized on one of yeah. them too. And part of that's also the defense with Edmonton. I didn't think Edmonton played a clean game initially no. either, and that's part of it as well. And it's the first game of the season. It's going to be you know a bit helter-skelter at times and everything. But the, the only player where I'm like, yeah, he's going to have a hard time finishing those chances is Niels Hoaglander. He's got too much of a muffin. I hate to say it. <laughs> Sad. You're coming around to my side of the. No, I mean I like Hoagland. I know. I'm, no, I'm, 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 no, I'm with you. But his shot, like I was really hoping that his shot would take that step. Yeah. We just haven't seen it. I know he scored a couple of goals in the preseason, kind of open net, and just kind of yeah. sh- fires it in. But he's got to get more on that shot. You know, I, like uh, he he whiffs on a couple when he does get it on. It's it, it doesn't go hard enough. Like it. The one he had the one one timer when Hughes just came back. They were on the power play. He had the one clapper on the power play that he got off pretty well i didn't get a chance to see the tracking data on it but even that one didn't really test jack campbell all that much and it kept it low along the ice didn't really direct it all that well so it's it's been an issue for hoaglander since his rookie year the shot just doesn't feel all that dangerous no and you know you know, I thought I thought Bick made a good point on the post game show, something we talked about that there is a role for for Hoaglander on the fourth line if he you know if he does play the right way and he makes the right defensive plays because he plays with energy, he wins puck battles, he does generate chances in offense, and he can move up and down your lineup. So I think there's a spot for him. But if he doesn't capitalize on these opportunities, he's not going to keep getting yeah. these looks in, in the top six, and he's going to have to score one of these pretty soon. When Pedersen is playing the way that he is, can't have a guy who can't finish uh, with him. On that on that right wing, but Dan, that but yeah. that line but that line was excellent last night. Uh, in the overall, they were they were excellent, and we'll talk more about Pedersen and Kuzmenko and the growing partnership that they have and the growing love uh, this city has for Andre Kuzmenko. It is Canucks Central coming up. Was the Canucks power play a problem last night? What were the issues they started to encounter? We'll get to that next. Plus, a big news update from the Canucks as well. That's next on Sportsnet 650. Canuck Central from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.com. Net. Canuck Central also brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. The Vancouver Canucks making some news here on this Thursday as Kevin Bieksa will sign a one-day contract and retire as a Canuck on November 3rd against the Anaheim Ducks. So he'll play in that game, and then he'll retire afterwards. Oh, he's going to play against the Ducks? <laughs> Canucks nice. could use some help on the right side, hey? Uh, yeah. Although Kyle Burroughs was okay last he's night. He's fine. 
<laughs> That's running joke. Can you play on the right side? Yeah. But it's nice to see because uh, Kevin Bieksa's tenure as a Vancouver Canuck is well documented with, you know, mm-hmm. being, being a mid-round draft pick. We all know what happened with Fedor Fedorov and, you know, how he earned his spot with this team. But, you know, he, he was he was one of the heart and soul players for the most successful run in Canucks history for that yeah. stretch, for that group of, of Canuck players that he was on with. And, you know, it's too bad, ultimately, they, they didn't win a Stanley Cup. But you saw what it meant to the Sedins, having, you know, the exit the way they did. You saw how Kevin did a wonderful job emceeing that night and, uh, you know, holding court. He's a Canuck through and through, Kevin yes. Bieksa, right? Like, it, it just wouldn't feel right if he doesn't conclude his career as a Canuck one way or another, whether that was retiring on a one-day one contract, joining the alumni, doing something in some official capacity. There was a discussion about him going in the Ring of Honor, for instance. Not yep. a guy that you would retire his jersey, but some fans would debate he should be in the Ring of Honor. So when he's a guy who's that big a part of Canucks history and has been a part of so many big moments, and I mean, one of the most picturesque moments of that playoff run was the goal he scored against the San Jose Sharks to win Game 5, which sent them to the Stanley Cup Final. The puck going off the stanchion, nobody yep. knows where it is, and he just claps it home from the point, and the Canucks go to the Stanley Cup Final. So there's just so many great moments around Kevin Bieksa, so I think this is very fitting. Uh, among players drafted by Vancouver, Bieksa ranks 11th all-time in games played with 597 for the club, spent um, 12 seasons in the organization, 10 at the NHL level from uh, 05, 06 to 2014-15. Yeah, man. And I remember early on when he came in, I think he wore number 25 when he came in initially yeah. or something like that. And then he changed his number after the first year. But I remember the first time he, he got called up, it was the 05, 06 season. And I forgot who it was he fought. But you're like, this guy had like, um, you know, he <laughs> he was just like dropping fools, right? Yeah. And, and you could tell he's a fighter because he was like, it was like a machine guns going off, like right, left, right, left, just like four in a row hooks coming. It's like, uh, this this guy knows how to throw a combination. And, and so, he had the Superman punch going later in his career. It was a bit later. I think that was Radko Gudis. Yeah. I think it was uh, a few years later or whatever. But early on in his career, he, he's not the biggest guy. He's like, what, six feet tall? You know, he's sturdy. And every, six, yeah, I don't even know if he is actually six one. But anyways, <laughs> my point being, not the biggest guy, not, not quite like Rick Rippon small or whatever, yeah. but the one of the most impressive things about him was how tough he was initially and how he would take on just about anybody. Yeah, and it uh, goes without saying, that's kind of uh, the player the Canucks could use right now uh, a later round draft pick that really emerges into being a top four quality defenseman for them. That's uh, exactly what Juice gave them back then, and they could use it again today. Uh, you were right, number twenty five, when he started his career with the Canucks. Was number twenty five, hey? Yeah. yeah. So before going to number three, I'm trying to find his fight card from uh, two thousand five. <laughs> I, th- I think he fought Aaron Asham, if I'm not mistaken. I could be Aaron wrong. Aaron Asham was a tough, Ooh, tough one piece of the toughest of business, guys, man. one of the toughest guys around, man. Aaron Asham. No, uh, his first fight, uh, as that was AHL, NHL fight, was against Byron Ritchie. That's what it was. He fed Ritchie really good. Yeah, and he fought Barnaby. Got the Barnaby got the best of Barnaby, and then yeah, and it's a good fighting career. Uh, November 3rd against the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, that'll be uh, the special night for Kevin Bieksa. Um, all right. So the Canucks power play. Uh, I couldn't talk it up enough in the preseason, how good it looked, how it was going to be dominant, going to be elite, probably a top five power play in the league. They go one for eight on the first night of the season. 
Nice goal for Kuzmenko that made it 3 nothing for the Canucks. But was it just one of those nights where the puck wasn't going in on a lot of those power plays? Or did anything worry you about how the Canucks fared on the power play last night? So I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm, I'm extremely worried about the power play because they have so many talented players. And no matter what, they'll overcome it and, and still give you a decent baseline. Last year at times... It was an off. It was a power play that overcame a lot of structural problems because of a lot of the talent, and they really found their groove towards the end of the season, which catapulted them into being the top yeah. nine, top ten power play last year. And we talked about the preseason about them trying some different looks and trying to do some different things, being a bit more unpredictable on the power play. Their movement was really good. That movement wasn't there Not yesterday. Last night, no, um, and that's when it needs to kind of come back. One of the things that would happen with that power play last year and has happened in the past, they get complacent, they get stagnant. And that's the biggest frustration with that power play at times. They had some moments like that, especially a bit later as the power play went on, where they were just trying to do the same things, and they didn't show enough solutions to what the Oilers were trying to do. To your point, you're trying to take away that quick pass to Bo Horvat. Yeah. The only solution they had was try to go around the outside and try to set up Pedersen again. But by the time you get it around the outside, the one-timer's gone. Yeah, and uh, Pedersen... Didn't get a lot of clean looks on on the one timer either. I think Campbell stopped him once or twice. Um, missed the net on a couple of occasions. He had that one weird one where he just let it slip through his legs, uh, where he just double clutched on it. Had a controller freeze for a second there. It was it was strange. Yeah, I do want to give some credit to the Edmonton Oilers. You know, uh, Zach Hyman is just a pain in the neck when it comes to how he defends on uh, on the penalty kill for the Edmonton Oilers, just nonstop hounding the puck. That's something the Canucks, it almost felt like they weren't ready for it, the amount of pressure that they received compared to what they were receiving in the preseason. But in saying all that, Sad, they still did generate quite a few chances. Maybe not in the natural setup of a power play, but they did have a couple of chances off the rush. Yeah, but I mean, the rush chances isn't something you build your power play on. Rush chances happen because either a breakdown occurs or the the penalty kills are trying to take something away. Yeah, but are we having a referendum on the power play if if they score a goal or two more? Probably not. They should have. But they didn't. But they didn't. And Miller it had the perfect. breakaway. There was the Kuzmenko pass across but to Miller. He should have finished but that as well. If you're evaluating the power play, though, they didn't do well enough. If your best chances were rush chances on your power play, the two ones you mentioned, yeah. that means your power play wasn't generating enough chances. Yeah. And they didn't. It's it's fair. Uh, I just I don't feel... Um, they won one I mean, they, they probably the win play. the game if they finish those chances. But Especially won, the, the Kuzmenko pass it. across to, to Miller. I think it was still 3-1 three, three or 3-2 at that point. Yeah, rush chance didn't finish it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think... I mean, I, I don't... Look, yeah, they need... Rush chances right. on the power play are not repeatable. Yeah, They're not generally repeatable every single power okay. play. That, yeah. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, it's, it's valuable. Sure, I loved what Quinn did because I think it was Hyman who was the forechecker on that play. You could see he was pressing Hughes and then he went behind Hughes. Kind of he was trying to jump or at least, you know, try to be behind him to steal the drop pass. So when that happened and the lane opened up and there's only three guys ahead of Quinn... And he had JT Miller right goes up. streaking through, and he just hits him tape to tape perfectly. I mean, there's like what, like half an inch of space yeah. between the, the stick and it, it getting through. It's an incredible pass by him. But that happens because you took something that the defense gave you, right? 
generally, that's not going to be something you get to do every single time. But I love that play. I, I'm just looking for repeatable traits. I didn't see enough repeatable things I liked on the power play last night. Yeah, it it was it was very clear. Edmonton decided, okay, the biggest threat here is Bo Horvat, and they really wanted to take it away. Well, it's because that it, if you open up the middle of the ice, yeah, that's what it always comes down to. It's not so much that Bo is a bigger threat than Pedersen, but if you clog up that space, it just makes it so much harder for you to get a clean look for Pedersen too. Because then, you know, you're not dragging a defender across if that's just kind of staying stagnant. By the time the puck comes across to Pedersen, everybody's yeah. stationary in front of the goalie. It, it, it really felt like it, at times, especially early on, they were trying to force the pass into, into Horvat. And, you know, Kuzmenko was down low, open, and available. Yeah, maybe he didn't really have a clean look for a shot there, but... It's it, it was almost as if Edmonton didn't worry so much about the puck going down low to Kuzmenko, and I think in turn that's partially why Kuzmenko, A, scored a goal, and B, had a couple of other chances uh, where Edmonton just wasn't that worried about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they were more worried about the puck coming back up to Bo Horvat than they were it going down to, to Kuzmenko. So, you know, look, teams do their scouting. Uh, they should have known the Canucks want to do this. Uh, a lot earlier, and I imagine this is going to be something the power play encounters more often this year where teams almost cheat towards taking away the pass to Bo Horvat in the bumper spots at. Yeah, and when I look at Bo's play in general too, and if you're taking away that chance from him on the power play, I can see the frustration from people watching him and being like, okay, like what else is he kind of providing? And I think that was just by virtue of um, how Edmonton was playing him on that. And I think that kind of goes to the frustration. Well, why wasn't Bo doing anything? As Well, it's like, well, you know, if guy's taking you away from the center of the ice on the power play, you're not going to be able to get that shot off. There's only so much space in that spot. But it goes back to the predictability. Like one thing gets taken away, you have to be able to open something else up as well. And if Bo is being guarded that hard around, right on the, around the slot, then you do need to kind of change a little bit. You do need to move into somebody else's space. And one thing we commented on during the preseason was they did a good job of moving around. And even if, you know, you saw a switch between Horvat sometimes and JT, you would see a switch with Elias Patterson and JT to switch sides. Do more of that stuff. When when something is taken away from you, don't keep trying to find the same solution to it. Find another way around it. And that's some of the stuff that they took a long time to figure out last year. I mean, how many times did we talk about them making adjustments and it took them a long time to do it? And we wondered, is it because the players are just just not doing it or is it the instruction isn't the proper instruction? And generally what I got when I asked around by it, it's like, well, it's not like the coach is saying, keep keep doing the same thing and don't move around. Yeah. Like usually <laughs> the instruction is to do different things, but once they're out there, they don't always execute on it. Yeah. So. I'm not concerned, again, about the power play. I'm not worried about anything big picture. The thing that would be most, I'd say, would be most eyebrow-raising to me, obviously with special teams, but just how the the power play looked. I thought, given how they looked in the preseason and everything we know about the power play, they would have a bit more urgency and be a bit cleaner than they were. Yeah, it it was tough at, at different points, especially when they had so many opportunities um second power play unit i was curious about why they didn't try to line up besser for more shots since he was on his one-timer side you know part of that can be the left-handed defenseman up top just 
is it natural for him to to turn that way and, and make the pass on that left half wall? But that was something I, I, I noticed with the second power play unit. It was clear the second power play unit, too, wanted to use Connor Garland for its entries, and uh, he was pretty successful with them, I will yeah. say. Uh, but you just noticed uh, their drop passes or you know who they wanted to carry the puck into the zone was generally number eight in Connor Garland. And so that was something I noticed with uh, with power play, too. But you know, this kind of speaks to the larger conversation about the Canucks this season sat they are going to rely on the power play quite a bit and I I don't know if I'm overly worried about the penalty kill I mean it's why wouldn't you be concerned about the penalty kill (laughs) what 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 reason do we have to think the penalty kill is going to be fine Uh, well I'm just saying I'm I'm not judging them on a game where they give up two goals to Connor McDavid no I know but I I, I'm just I mean I'm just questioning yeah I'm not worried about the PK like what reason do we have to not okay it's fair like yes I am (laughs) okay facts only I am worried about the penalty kill but maybe the better way of saying it is I'm not freaking out about it yet because it's Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl that did it to them last night and maybe with a hand from the refs on top of that but it was I don't want to see JT killing penalties too much. Mikheyev's going to come back. Maybe that helps. But JT isn't, can't isn't JT kill. like one of their number one penalty killers? I mean, I, I was getting roasted over the summer when I said JT needs to kill less penalties because he's not very good at it. He's not great at it. He's better than some of the other guys they have. That's part but, of the but issue. But he plays. Yes. He plays too much on the PK. Yeah. You know. Well, who else are you playing there? If Nils Oman's not playing there, Curtis Lazar is he's a big there. part of the PK now. Um, they're Mikheyev, going to use Pedersen on there. Mikheyev, when he comes back, will be, be a big be a big part of it. Would Mikheyev be because I loved watching Zach Hyman on the penalty kill last night? Would that be sort of Mikheyev's role on the penalty kill, just hounding the puck pretty consistently? Much. I mean, he's one of the he's a really good penalty killer, and a lot of it is you know his closing speed. He's always pressuring, always hounding, and depending on how the Canucks play with him coming back, and you saw it oftentimes when they had Tyler Mott, they would have him on top of the. Uh, PK and it, he'd be the one guy that would kind of just kind of pressure to point, pressure to point, pressure to point, and then they changed it to okay, everybody pressure when there's a puck carry and and guys you know move each off each other with Mikheyev because he's able to c- cover so much ground, he's going to be a demon at the top of that yeah. PK. Um, I still think they'll use JT a lot and Bo for faceoffs, but I like to see JT's minutes come down a bit and get a guy like Mikheyev out there a lot on the PK because he his game really fits it. It's um. It's such a huge part. The point I was I was going to make is, and Bruce Boudreaux has admitted this. I mean, every head coach admits it to some extent. But yes, we focus on five on five numbers because they are a good indicator of the real quality players in the league and who can have success at five on five. And yet, so many games are decided on special teams. Last night was one of them. So many of the games that crushed the Canucks season last year were decided on special teams. They couldn't score enough on the power play. They gave up too much on the penalty kill. And last night was sort of a peek into how the Canucks will have success this season or whether or not they will have success depends so much on special teams. And last night wasn't good enough. On special teams. Yeah, that's what cost them the game. Um, I I do 
do think that in general, though, like what they're trying to do on the PK might be slightly different this year. And one of the things that we're going to see as time goes on is exactly what the overall goal is on the power play. That's not to say that there aren't many positives that you can have on the power play with Kuzmenko. But one thing to keep in mind, you saw later in the game too, Bester came back in. Mm -hmm. Kuzmenko was great. He scored that goal. He creates different opportunities. And we talked so much about why he's good. Goal mouth with the right hand shot. And he's perfect for that seam pass. And front door, he does a good job of understanding what to do. As the game goes on and as the team kind of had a harder time adjusting, you saw the coach go to Brock Bester a bit more too. So that's going to be the one thing to keep in mind. Like Kuzmenko scored, he's going to have to keep scoring, but that's one matchup. And if, if teams are, are starting to take Bo away a little bit, do you have to take a different approach to what you're doing in the bumper spot? So there may have to be some adjustments. I don't want to see this team take too long to adjust though to issues on the power play like they did last year. So uh, for as good as uh, Kuzmenko, you know, he, he scored on the power play. At five on five, that line was really good. <laughs> like really, really good sat. And the partnership with Pedersen and Kuzmenko continues to be one that I have growing confidence in. Sure, a lot of that maybe due down to Pedersen, but it helps to have a player that is already reading off of him so well. Like Kuzmenko's hockey IQ and his offensive instincts and awareness really shine through when him and Pedersen are playing together. Yeah, I mean it's it's a perfect landing spot for him, and they were able to stay t- together throughout the tra- uh, throughout training camp and the preseason, which I think it's a it's a big positive. And you know, Besser was out, and you saw him being labored at times, and people wondered why is Besser playing so much. This has been uh, Bruce's mo though. When when Besser comes back from injury, he's he plays him into shape. He mentioned that it's like you can either take a guy's minutes away or keep playing him, so he, hopefully he gets back to game speed. But on the Kuzmenko side, the fact that they were able to create that chemistry, he had a good preseason. They were productive. And when Patterson is playing at the level he's playing at, like he's the driver. Yeah. And and Kuzmenko's on along for the ride really well, you know. And I don't think Kuzmenko would be showing as well if Patterson wasn't doing the things that he's been doing. And give Hoaglander credit. I think what Hoaglander did a good job of was winning puck battles and retrieving pucks for those guys. And if he can do some of that dirty work, it helps it out. Ultimately, that's what you're going to need a presence on that line. Kuzmenko is not going to be a puck retriever himself. You know what if, I mean? If Hoaglander doesn't play better, I mean, Mikheyev is coming right into that line i mean i don't know uh, like if everybody's healthy i don't know what what hoaglander has to do to stay in the top nine but right now it's it's pretty easy to take him out with the way that he's playing yeah i thought it was better than tanner pearson last night i thought tanner pearson really struggled last night it was he did not have a good game my boy my boy did not have a good game he had a he had he you can say he had a bad game yeah he did i mean bad penalty bad turnover i mean a couple moments in that game that he definitely wore some goat horns not a great game from him no so you think it's realistic that Hoaglander could take his spot in the top nine? Not right away, but as time goes on, if, if Pearson's going to have We know more how it works. Like, like veterans, it's, no, it's really true. hard to dislodge veterans from their spot. But Pearson has to play well. Yeah. The reason he was, you know, he was he kept getting those chances last year because he was playing well. He was productive. He was, you know, five on five. He was one of the better players on the team last year for the most part. So he, he performed. But if you're not performing, what's the argument to keep you there? Yeah. You know, and it's only one game. But, I mean, you, you know, if we, if we want to be fair and we, we bring a microscope on Niels Hoaglander, then it's fair to point out Pearson wasn't good last night. And if Pearson plays like that and Hoaglander plays the way he did, then you should see him get a chance over Pearson. That's that's what's right. We'll see if that happens, but that's what but I we, think. My point is we both know veterans get a longer leash. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. To figure it out and find their game. Yeah. 
Uh, it's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canuck Central. Coming up, hour two of the program, John Garrett is going to join us. His take on how the Canucks fared in their first game of the season and as he and Shorty get prepared for the city of brotherly love on Saturday. It's Dan Richo, Satyar. I don't know why I said it like that. It is yeah, Canucks Central on Sportsnet 650. <laughs> <laughs>